Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5? We are in the Gospel of Matthew, obviously. We are working our way right through verse by verse. We have kind of taken our time through what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, which covers chapters 5 through 7. And this morning we find ourselves at the end of the longest section in the Sermon on the Mount, a section that runs from chapter 5, verse 21 through verse 48. And this is a section where Jesus is correcting what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching from the law, which really wasn't in keeping with God's original intent. They had misinterpreted and misapplied what God intended when he gave the law to the nation under Moses. And so starting in verse 21 and running through verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus has been correcting these misconceptions by giving the true explanation and the proper application of these laws as God originally intended. And he's been doing that by touching on six different aspects of the law. Murder, adultery, divorce, honesty, demonstrating mercy instead of demanding justice, and then loving our enemies. And six times he quotes from the rabbinic tradition of the scribes and Pharisees by saying, you have heard that it was said by those of old. And then he gives God's true interpretation, but I say to you. Now, this morning we come to the sixth aspect of the law that Jesus addresses in verses 43 to 48, which is loving our enemies. And let's read verses 43 to 8 uh, together, where the Lord said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now in these verses we have, in essence, the single greatest Christian ethic. It's an ethic that differentiates the Christian from the world as nothing else can. The dynamic of the church has always been in its differentness or in its distinctiveness from the world. And I think... If there was any one statement that best summed up what Christianity ought to be, it's the one Jesus touched on in our text this morning when he commanded his followers to love our enemies. Folks, this is the Mount Everest of Christian virtue. It's the absolute pinnacle of Christian living. If love is the greatest thing, which Paul said it was in 1 Corinthians 13, then loving our enemies is the greatest thing that love can do. And if the Sermon on the Mount is laying out for us the principles of kingdom living, which I believe it is, then this statement in verse 44 is the climax, the ultimate goal we should be striving for. Because, listen, nothing identifies us more with our Heavenly Father than loving our enemies. That's exactly what he did. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet the enemies of God, at enmity with him, God loved us so much he had Christ die for us. Jesus didn't die for his friends, he died for his enemies. He loved the world, a world that hated him, that wound up persecuting him, 
mocking, beating, scourging, and crucifying him. Yet from the cross he forgave them, for they didn't really know what they were doing. Now, in all the Sermon on the Mount, there are two statements that are kind of obscure. I mean, they don't really stand out, all right? But I think that they really sum up the heart of what Jesus is saying to those who claim to be members of the kingdom here on earth. And all of us who are Christians, because we've received the king into our hearts to reign over our lives, the kingdom of God has come inwardly into our hearts. And someday, of course, when Jesus returns at his second coming, he'll bring the kingdom outwardly. But right now we are considered members of the kingdom because Jesus now as king reigns in our hearts and over our lives. And for those of us who claim to be members of the kingdom, there are two statements that are kind of obscure, but I think sum up the heart of everything Jesus wants us to think about. The first one is in verse 47 of chapter 5, where Jesus said, What do you do more than others? What do you do more than others? In other words, the Lord was saying, what does your religious system have more than any other? What sets you apart from them? What makes you different? And the second statement comes out of chapter 6, verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them. And these two statements sum up the whole sermon and, in fact, our whole Christian experience. What do you do more than others? And do not be like them. And what Jesus is saying in both of these simple yet all-encompassing statements is this. When it's all said and done, what makes you as a Christian different from anybody else? That's a very important thing to grapple with. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, what makes us as Christians differ or different from anyone else? I mean, what sets us apart from the world? Some would say, well, we go to church. Well, a lot of people go to church, synagogue, temple, mosque, who don't know the true and living God and are not his kids. That doesn't separate us from the world. Well, we worship God. So a lot of people worship their concept of God. Well, we serve the Lord. A lot of religious people serve their gods. Well, you see, we Christians, we have morals. Well, again, a lot of religious people and even secular people have morals. Well, I know what separates us from the world is that we're willing to die for our God. Do I need to remind anyone here of 9-11? As we're approaching the 10th anniversary of that horrible day, when all of us were made to realize with startling clarity that there were people in this world that were willing to die for their God who was not God? None of those things differentiates Christians from other groups. But the one thing, listen, the one thing that separates Christians and Christianity, from every other person and religious system in the world, is that we have the love of God in us, which has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit through our relationship with Jesus, as Paul said in Romans 5, verse 5. Folks, this is a supernatural love that finds its highest expression when we use it to love our enemies. Of course, (laughs) when the people of the world read something like this in the Scriptures, if they ever do, or, you know, they hear us talking about how that we are commanded to love our enemies. The people of the world think that that's absolute lunacy, don't they? Because in the world, people say, well, you don't love your enemies. You kill your enemies. You destroy your enemies. You get even with your enemies. You do what you have to. There's no such thing as loving your enemy. That's ridiculous. Nobody in their right mind would do that. Well, Jesus was in his right mind, and he commanded his followers to do that very thing, even as he had done. 
The reason the world can't get their minds around that idea is because it's a divine ethic. It's a supernatural ability that God gives to those who are connected to him through our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a divine love that the world knows nothing of. It's what the New Testament calls the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is something that grows in our lives automatically as we are saved and in fellowship with Jesus Christ. As we are connected to Him and we abide in Him every day, a wonderful thing begins to happen. His life begins to flow through us because we are connected to Him, just like He said, like a vine in the branches, right? And when we're connected with, to Jesus every day in fellowship, His life begins to flow into our lives through the Holy Spirit, and the result is we see the character of God beginning to be reproduced, or beginning to be produced, I should say, in our lives for the world to see. And as Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the one that leads the list is love, right? It's agape is the Greek word. You know, in Greek, there are several words for love. There is the Greek word eros. We get our word erotic from that word. Very physical, often selfish love. There is storge. A love of a parent for a child. Those two words, by the way, although they appear in the Greek language, do not appear in the New Testament. The third one does appear in the New Testament. Phileo, which is a reciprocal friendship kind of a love. I love you. You love me. We get this neat friendship going on here. And then finally, you have a word that's used almost exclusively of God's love in the New Testament. It's the word agape. And agape is a totally other-centered, selfless, unconditional kind of love. And this is the kind of love that we are to love our enemies with. God's agape love. Look, the world can repay evil for evil, and often does. The world can repay good for good, and often does. And unfortunately, many in the world repay evil for good, which is demonic. But only a child of God has the capacity to consistently repay good for evil and love for hatred. Look, guys, loving our neighbors and hating our enemies is just natural for the people of the world. That doesn't separate us from anybody. But loving your enemies is a supernatural ethic that only the children of God can demonstrate. How? Again, Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, because of our relationship with Jesus, we are born of the Spirit. In other words, as Peter put it, we have become partakers of the divine nature. God lives in us which means that all of God's attributes reside in us. And when God lives in a person's heart, only then can that love come forth from their lives. Because agape love, guys, is a supernatural love that only comes from God. We can't make it or fake it. We can't do anything to to conjure it up through our own hard work. It's totally a product of God's character. And to have that kind of love in your heart, Jesus has to live in there through the presence of his Holy Spirit. It is this love, the love of God, more than anything else that demonstrates to the people of this world that we belong to God. Jesus said this on the night before his crucifixion in John 13, verses 34 and 5. Let me read it to you. He said to his disciples in the upper room, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God's love. But listen to me, as important as loving our fellow Christians is in revealing to the people of this world that we belong to God, listen to me, nothing causes our light to shine brighter than when we love our enemies. Now, let's look at our text again, starting in verse 43. I want to show you some things. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching the people. However, the law of Moses only taught the first half of verse 43. You shall love your neighbor. Nowhere in the law did God at any point, at any time, ever command his people to hate their enemies. This is a classic example of putting words in God's mouth. Happens all the time, by the way. See, the scribes and Pharisees concluded that if God said they were to love their neighbors, well, then certainly it goes without saying they were to hate their enemies. Although God never said that. So it was kind of a hybrid teaching they came up with. Half belonged to God and half belonged to them. But listen, anytime you try to combine God's word with man's wisdom, you always pervert and pollute the word of God. And so Jesus wants to restore God's standard with regard to love to its proper place. And as we've already said, the scribes and the Pharisees, well, they were only teaching half of what God said. The other half they were teaching what they wanted to teach, what pleased them. The problem was that the command that God gave in Leviticus 19, verse 18, when he said, you shall love your neighbor. Well, if you read that verse in its entirety, you'll discover that the scribes and Pharisees left out something very important. Two words, as yourself. The whole thing read, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this was a very convenient omission. Because the scribes and Pharisees weren't ready to love anybody like they loved themselves. And God has a way of putting his finger on our selfishness, doesn't he? I mean, if you'd only said, love your neighbor, right? If that was all he said in the law, love your neighbor. Then if you loved your neighbor 5%, you would go around boasting that you were obeying God. I'm loving my neighbor. He didn't tell me how much I need to love my neighbor. I'm loving him a little bit. That's all I feel I need to do. God says, oh, no, you don't. No, no. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that do? Man, it raises the standard way up there, doesn't it? Because now I'm to be as concerned for my neighbor's well-being as I am for my own. Now, if you're a scribe or a Pharisee, if you're, if you're lawyers of the law, all right, you're always looking for a loophole, right? If you don't want to do what God has said, you're always going to try to find a loophole. So God made an ironclad law here. Love your neighbor as yourself. No wiggle room there. Well, then they started focusing on the interpretation of what neighbor meant. Well, who is my neighbor, they began to think. And the Pharisees said, well, only fellow Jews were our neighbors. But then again, only certain Jews. All right? You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 11, listen. This is talking about how Jesus called Matthew, who was a Jew, uh, but worked for the Roman government, to be one of his disciples. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees said, look, my neighbors are fellow Jews, but only those who weren't Tax collectors and sinners. You say, wait a minute, we're all sinners. Well, they define sinners as criminals, prostitutes, you know, those who were notorious public sinners. They wrote all those folks off. say, wow, that takes care of a big chunk of society. Yeah, that's true. But they weren't finished yet, all right? Because in John 7, verse 49, and you can read the whole context, there's a crowd of Jewish people that are piping up, giving their opinion about something. And here's what the Pharisees said, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. 
So any Jew that wasn't proficient in the law, the uneducated riffraff, you might say, were branded by the scribes and Pharisees as non-neighbors also. We don't see that today, of course, do we? We don't see intellectuals in our society thinking that those who are, uh, are non-intellectuals, you know, they get a couple of degrees and they think that they, you know, are superior to everybody else, some of these uh, so-called intellectuals, you know. And it was the same back then. Scribes and Pharisees were the educated people. They went to the right universities and so on. And they were the doctors of the law and so on and so forth. And so, you know, nobody had uh, a right to give a comment about the law because you were uneducated. Your opinion didn't matter. It's like today. You can't say anything unless you're an expert. All right? A common person who's just got common sense, we're not entitled to an opinion many times. And if you're a Christian and you give an opinion about what the Word is saying in a certain passage, you know, a lot of times these liberal professors will shoot you down and say, you can't go by them. They, they have no degree. That's kind of what the scribes and Pharisees felt. They rejected all these, quote-unquote, uneducated riffraff. These were then branded by the scribes and Pharisees as non-neighbors also. So what are you left with? Well, basically, they had reduced neighbor to only those in their little group. Their Pharisee buddies, their scribe buddies. That was about the only group they recognized as their neighbor. But see, God had never, ever intended for neighbor to be so narrowly defined. In fact, and I'll read you one scripture and then I'll have you turn to the next one. But in Leviticus 19, verse 34, here's what God actually said. The stranger who dwells among you. Now, the stranger, a non-Jew, who dwells among you shall be as to you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Pretty straightforward, right? It's interesting how people pick and choose when they want to prove a point. It's amazing to me how people approach the Bible today. It's like a spiritual sizzler. You know, it's a salad bar, spirituality. You know, we Americans were big on salad bars. Why? I could pick whatever I want and leave whatever I want. And so people come to the Bible and they pick all the stuff that they like and leave all the rest. All the spiritual broccoli and things that they don't want to deal with. They leave all that. Very sad today. Now, Jesus really nails this home because they tried to pull this on the Lord. You know, you know, they tried to, to basically say, well, who is our neighbor? Because they were trying to get out of what God had said, right? So turn to Luke chapter 10. And you all know this, but I'm gonna, let's read it together because it really, you know, you really have to see it. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer, got to watch some lawyers. A certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, here it is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, he said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. The implication here is a Jew. Went down from Jerusalem, down to Jericho, which was a notorious stretch uh, where bandits and robbers hid behind hills and things. So this guy was jumped on on the road and they robbed the guy, beat him almost to death, left him lying on the ground, bleeding, and so on. Stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road. Now, here we see a fellow countryman, right? 
but not just any Jew. Here was a priest of Judaism. Okay? Supposed to be very holy. That Jew should have been a neighbor to his fellow countrymen, right? He didn't want to deal with it. I don't want to get involved. He just passed by on the other side of the street and walked away. Verse 32, likewise a Levite. Now, of course, the priests and Levites were very spiritual men, so-called. The priests, of course, they served God in the temple. And the Levites also served God, but not in the priesthood. Both groups served the Lord. So two Jewish, very religious guys is the idea. They both see a countryman laying there, beaten almost to death. They don't want to get involved. They pass by on the other side, leave the guy laying there. Then Jesus drops a bombshell. In verse 33, but a certain Samaritan. And now, here's where I'm sure this Pharisee, his mouth dropped open. Because if anyone was considered an enemy to the Jews, the Jews considered the Samaritans enemies and vice versa. They had a long history that goes back to the Old Testament period. The Jews felt so strongly about Samaria that when they had to go from Jerusalem up to the Galilee, they wouldn't even cross through Samaria, which was on the way, which is right between Jerusalem, Judea, and Galilee. So they would, pat, they would go east, cross over the Jordan, into Perea, go up north until they came adjacent to Galilee, crossed over that, bypassing Samaria altogether. They didn't even want the dust of Samaria defiling them. These folks hated each other. Now, for Jesus to make the Samaritan the hero of the story was shocking to say the least, okay? So, after a while, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this guy was laying. When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The wine was to disinfect the wounds. The oil was to soothe them. Very kind gesture. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Now Jesus turns the whole thing onto the Pharisees, or this one lawyer in particular. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The question was, who is my neighbor? What did Jesus say? Anyone who has a need. How do I love my neighbor? I meet their need. And that's important because a lot of Christians read this passage and go, Pastor, I just can't understand how I can do this. So I have this enemy at work, we'll say. This guy drives me crazy constantly. You know, I mean, I have no feelings for this person whatsoever. How can I love them? I, I have no feelings for them. That's the whole point. What Jesus is saying here is that love is not about feelings. Love is about actions. If somebody is in need, even if it's an enemy, and you can meet that need, you go ahead and do it because that's how you love that person. I have discovered if you wait for the feelings to come, you'll probably never act to love your enemies. If you act out of obedience to what God has said and meet needs of those people who don't like you at all, feelings will come. And I'll tell you this. I've seen an interesting thing happen. When a Christian loves somebody that is the, their enemy with an act of kindness, oftentimes God uses it to pierce that person's heart, soften their heart, and wind up, they wind up getting saved in the process. I've seen it happen. So what Jesus is talking about here when he says love your enemies has nothing to do with feelings. It's all about action. 
Who is my neighbor? Anyone who has a need. How do I love them? By meeting their need. You know, Jesus is basically saying to us here, as Christians, our love is not to be limited to just those in our little group, whatever that group might be. If it is, then what more do we do in the way of loving others than any pagan? Than any pagan. Let's read our verses again this morning, verses 43 to 47. Where Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son, and the idea here is, he makes his son rise on the fields of the evil and the good. And he sends his rain on the fields of the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. The term tax collector was just another way of saying the worst sinners of society. Jesus is saying, look, if you only love those who love you, I mean, the worst sinners in society can do that. I mean, even the most evil among us can love their families. What more do you do than any pagan if you only love those who love you? He said in verse 47, if you greet your brethren only. What do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. Now, let me just say this, so we, so we wind this to a close. But loving people as God loves them, listen, does not make us children of God. It just proves that we are children of God. Because, again, the kind of love that Jesus is saying we are to love others with is a love that has to come from God. It's, it's God's love. You can't love somebody with God's love until you belong to God as a child of God. And then the love of God can be shown. It doesn't have to be shown, by the way. I mean, you know, it's there. The Holy Spirit has poured, us, poured it into our hearts. It's available. But you can keep it bottled up. You don't have to turn on the spigot, so to speak, and let it flow. You can keep that love bottled up and go on hating and resenting and, and, and retaliating and doing all the things that the world does. Just because Jesus is in our hearts doesn't mean Christians have to do what God wants or have to bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's up to us how much we want to walk with God and allow him, him to live his life through us. But this kind of love does not make us children of God. It just simply is an evidence that we already are his children. And people read this, Christians now, and they say, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I know what Jesus said here, but I just don't see how that's possible. I just don't see how loving an enemy like this is even possible. I mean, I don't know. I just don't get it. Look, we are living in a day when I believe Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And he told us that before his return, the love of many would grow cold. And I think we're seeing that even in the church. I am seeing in the church of Jesus Christ where Christians are having a hard time loving each other, let alone loving their enemies. But is this kind of life possible? You bet it's possible because with God, all things are possible. If you've ever read, read Fox's Book of Martyrs, let me read to you one story, short story, about a Scottish reformer named George Wishart, a contemporary and friend of John Knox, who was sentenced to die as a heretic. Because the executioner knew of Wishart's selfless ministering to hundreds of people who were dying of the plague, he hesitated carrying out the sentence. When Wishart saw the expression of remorse on the executioner's face, he went over and kissed him on the cheek, saying, Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. You know, 
that book is loaded with these kinds of stories. How that God's love was working so powerfully in the lives of these people because they had so totally given their hearts to Christ and allowed God to really live his life through them. They were able to love their enemies in a way that we can only, we have a hard time even imagining. Of course, you know, enemies don't have to be so menacing, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. This guy was standing before an executioner who was going to kill the body literally. How about those who execute your character behind your back? Who want to kill your reputation? What about a spouse who many in marriage consider an enemy? A lot of people consider their spouse their enemy today. Or a wild, wayward teenager. Many co-workers are considered by many Christians as enemies. Even friends, neighbors, parents, or even a fellow church member. Our attitude towards them all is to be the same. We are to pray for them and love them with God's love. And again, loving them doesn't necessarily involve feelings. It involves actions. I have discovered if I act toward someone who dislikes me or even hates me with an act of kindness, sometimes it softens their heart and I've gained a brother or sister in the process. One author had this to say on the subject, and I quote, he said, I'll tell you a secret. You know, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. I'll tell you a secret, he said. If you pray for your enemies, for the people who bug you the most, you will experience power in your life and the ability to love them that will blow you away. Why? Because when you pray for your enemies, two things happen. They change and you change. It might take some time, but slowly yet surely, you'll see a change. If I'm praying every day for a guy I can't stand, something amazing happens. I become involved with him and interested in him. As I pray for him, there is a linkage established through prayer, end quote. I challenge you to hate somebody you're praying for every day. I don't care how much this guy or gal attacks you at work or whatever it might be. If you begin to pray for them, and I'm talking about with the right heart, an amazing transformation begins to take place. You can't hate somebody you pray for. You will begin to feel empathy, compassion, and God will begin to work. You'll change in your attitude towards them, and you might, through your kindness, win them over to Christ. I've seen it happen many times. All right, finally, as we bring this to a close, Jesus said in verse 48, Therefore, you shall be, what? Perfect. Interesting. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Verses a little controversial. What exactly is Jesus Christ saying? Well, first of all, I think that verse 48 not only sums up this section from verses 21 to verse 47 of chapter 5, I think, in many respects, it sums up the whole Sermon on the Mount. But what is he saying here? Well, the Greek word for perfect is teleos, which is often translated in the New Testament mature. It's true. Often translated mature. And so, because of that, many people, when they teach this section, and I've heard this, I've even taught it this way. As you study a little further in some things, you begin to realize, well, maybe I haven't been really teaching that the right way either. But many people, when they come to the verse 48 of chapter 5, will actually say that what Jesus is saying here is be mature. Perfect means mature. Be mature as your Father in heaven is, what? Mature? 
First of all, our Father in Heaven is not mature as in He's grown up. He's perfect, as in absolutely perfect. So when Jesus said, be like your Father in Heaven, I have to believe the context is perfection. I believe He's talking about perfection here. Now that's a problem. And here's why. Absolute perfection is absolutely impossible for fallen creatures to attain to. The disciples recognized this when Jesus brought the whole subject up again in Matthew 19. And they asked the Lord about it. They asked him, how could this kind of perfection be achieved by human beings? Here's what Jesus said. With men, it's what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You get the point that Jesus is making here in verse 48 as he made in Matthew 19? What he is teaching here is not humanly possible. That is the whole point. That's why we don't need to lessen it or soften the impact of it because Jesus is saying exactly what he intended to say. He said, if you're going to really be members of the kingdom, you have to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Here's the problem. None of us can be perfect. So how in the world can any of us ever get to heaven? Folks, that is exactly the point he was trying to make. Because after we have, you know, we've been looking at all these different aspects of the law, six different examples, right? But all the way through, the underlying theme that he is trying to get at is he's contrasting true righteousness with false righteousness. He's contrasting the kind of righteousness that will get a person into heaven and the kind that will give people the impression that they're going to go to heaven like the Pharisees and scribes thought. But we're not going to get them there. And what he was saying through all of this is the kind of perfection, the kind of righteousness that gets you into heaven has to be perfect righteousness. But Lord, none of us can be perfect. That's right. That's why it's not a matter of hard work, religious effort, and ceremonies and rituals as the scribes and Pharisees have been teaching you guys forever. The kind of righteousness that gets a person to heaven is what Paul the Apostle said, a righteousness which is perfect and comes from God to us through faith. In John 3, Jesus said, no man, he's talking to a very committed Pharisee named Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, nobody ever ascended to heaven through their hard work and religious efforts. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. That's what Christianity is. It's not like every other religion on the face of the planet. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the standards that I'm presenting to you are so far above every other religion, every other practice in the world because they're not of this world. These standards are rooted in God's character and they're perfect. But Lord, we can never attain to perfection. That's right. That's why I have come. That if you believe in me, I will give you my perfect righteousness and you will get to heaven, not because you work your way up to heaven through your hard work. I'm going to come and get you someday and take it to be with me. The whole Sermon on the Mount was Jesus correcting this fallacy, this idea that pretty much everybody in the world has who is religious. So I just am a good enough person and I work real hard and do the right things and I'm moral and help out the food pantry and, 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 and walk old ladies across the street when I'm able to and so on and so forth, that God looks at all those good deeds and he will use them to justify me. I'll be righteous in God's eyes. And Jesus is saying, no, you won't. What you'll have is self-righteousness. 
which God looks at as filthy rags that we clothe ourselves with, that will never get us into heaven. Because to get into heaven, we have to have perfect righteousness, what the Bible calls the royal robes of Christ's righteousness, which are only applied to us by faith in him. Very important point, right? Very important point. As one author put it, he put it this way, and I quote, This is precisely our Lord's point in all these illustrations and in the whole sermon to lead his audience to an overpowering sense of spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritual bankruptcy. Didn't he begin chapter 5 with the Beatitudes? And the very first Beatitude was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of God. And we studied that. We said the word poor there didn't just mean a little poor, down in your luck kind of thing. You know, we Americans, we're big at pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? We've, we've made a whole culture based on the fact that if you're poor, you can work hard, and through ingenuity, hard work, you can become rich. And there's all kinds of examples of people that have done that. And so we think, when it's, we apply that spiritually, we think, well, Jesus said, you know, if you're poor in spirit, what do you do? You work harder. Because if I work harder at being a good person, then mine is the kingdom of heaven. But the Greek word that Jesus used was an abject poverty. It was, a, it was a, a poverty that was so severe, there was no way you could ever get out of it. In other words, you're poor because, we'll say, you're a quadriplegic. You can't move. You can't help yourself. You're absolutely helpless. Therefore, you're absolutely stuck in your situation. There's no way you can ever ascend out of that poverty. And Jesus said, that's the kind of poverty that you need to get into heaven. Where you come to God and say, God, I am absolutely bankrupt of anything good that I can offer you to earn my salvation. I am a sinner. And I can do nothing that will please you. All of my good deeds are like filthy rags in your sight. And God, what I need to do is, I, I confess to you that I am completely helpless. There's nothing good in me that will cause you to look at me and say, well, come on in, you're good enough. I need Jesus. I'm completely bankrupt. Jesus said, now, that's the person that the kingdom of heaven belongs to. The one that says, I am not worthy. But Lord Jesus, you promised, if I put my faith in you, the only one who was worthy, you are the perfect man, the, the sinless lamb of God. And if I put my faith in you, you will take me to be with you someday forever. Look, we are saved by grace. And folks, listen, as Christians, we live every day by God's grace. Paul said, since I've given my heart to Christ, the life that I now live, I don't live for my, it's not me living. It's Jesus Christ living his life through me. It's a life of faith. I trust Jesus Christ every day to live his life through me because I don't have the power to love my enemies. I don't have the power not to lust or to hate in my heart. I don't have the power to show mercy instead of demanding justice. My fallen nature wants to retaliate against my enemies. But Lord, you live inside of me. And I know that you can give me the strength if I draw close to you and, and draw from your strength. That's what the whole purpose of this sermon was all about. To show sinners how they can get saved, not through their hard work, through the work of Christ. And once you are saved, how desperately we need every day to draw our strength from God. To be all that he wants us to be. No, we'll never be perfect in this life. Practically. Positionally, yeah, in Christ I'm perfect. Practically, no. We still blow it. Now, the standard is perfection. So every day I get up, I should look at the standard. I shouldn't look at all the people I work with who are unbelievers and say, I'm pretty good because look at these losers. That's not, they're not the standard. The standard is Christ, perfection. So every day I get up and say, well, Lord, today you're the standard. I need your strength to 
I'm not sure how high I'm going to go in reaching that goal, but that's the goal. I want to be like you. If that's your heart's desire, God will give you the desires of your heart and give you the strength to be what only he can make you and die to be. Father, we thank you for your great love that sent your son to die for sinners such as we. We thank you, Lord, that eternal life is not something we have to work for because we can't work for it. It's a gift that you give freely through your son. And once we receive Jesus into our hearts, Father, we need grace to crucify self every day that Jesus might live his life through us. Because we want to be like you, Lord. We want to show the people of this world that we are different. That Jesus Christ has made us different. That they might see the light, be drawn to us. That we could witness to them about you. Forgive us for our selfishness, Lord. Forgive us for wanting to retaliate against those who have hurt us. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking like the world and acting like the world so often instead of thinking like our Savior and acting the way he commanded us to live. We just love you, Lord. Give us grace. In these last days, the darkness is so intense. It's so easy to be sucked up into it, begin to act like the unbelievers around us. Give us grace, Lord, to live like our Savior, to be a light in the darkness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.